You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Comperl. 2023 is ending on an optimistic note, with financial markets and the Fed becoming increasingly hopeful that inflation will continue to decline in 2024 and the economy will avoid a recession. The possibility of a soft landing, however, often felt unlikely throughout this year. Markets navigated through the regional banking crisis in March, anxieties from debt ceiling negotiations, a new war in the Middle East, and rapidly rising bond yields through September and October, just to name a few things. On today's episode, we talk with Chris Lowe, Chief Economist with FHN Financial, and Sophia Kearney Letterman, Senior Economist with FHN Financial, about the biggest developments in 2023 and what to look out for next year. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, Chris Lowe and Sophia Kearney Letterman recap this year in the macroeconomy and financial markets. But first, a quick market update. Treasury yields maintained their post FOMC rally the last couple weeks, cementing market confidence for lower inflation and lower Fed funds next year. Most intermediate and long term yields are ending 2023 very close to where they began the year. November PCE data last week showed another month of moderating core inflation and robust personal spending, a fitting finale to the last two months of data that have spurred high hopes for a 2024 soft landing. The second revision to Q3 GDP, also last week, shifted quarterly core PCE inflation downward from 2.3% to 2.0%, yet another suggestion that inflation is converging to the Fed's 2% target. Since the FOMC decision on December 13th, Some Fed officials have pushed back against market expectations for up to 175 basis points of rate cuts next year. But markets aren't yet convinced. Now that many inflation metrics are showing price pressures have gotten under control, Fed officials will have to better articulate to markets how long inflation must be subdued until policymakers will feel comfortable starting the process of interest rate normalization. Fed funds futures trading currently suggests an expectation for the first rate cut to happen at the March FOMC meeting. That's all for the market update this time. Now, our discussion with Chris Lowe and Sophia Kearney Letterman. Today's episode is a bit different than our usual interview format. We're going to take a look back at the most important developments in 2023 and discuss what we have our eyes on for 2024. So here to join me through this recap of yet another exciting year in the economy and financial markets are Chris Lowe, Chief Economist with FHN Financial, and Sophia Kearney-Letterman, Senior Economist with FHN Financial. Chris and Sophia, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Will. It's good to be here. Thanks, Will. It's great to be back with you guys. We're ending this year on such a positive note, but I feel like the last month or month and a half, the mood in financial markets and with Fed communication has really shifted to thinking we're going to get a soft landing next year. And whether or not that ends up being the case, I think it's also important to remember everything else that happened this year. Um, So the debt ceiling showdown, the regional banking crisis, more than a handful of ballots for Speaker of the House, uh, and the beginning of a new war in the Middle East, just to name a few. So to help drive our conversation, I've asked both of you to prepare a few things. We're first going to start by each sharing a story or quote from 2023 that you think sums up the year. So, Sophia, why don't you start us off? What story or quote from this year do you think encapsulates all of the excitement and drama we saw for the economy and financial markets in 2023? 
Yeah, well, it's funny to hear you talk about all the things that have happened, right? It feels like a quick year, but then you mention all these things and you're like, wow, a lot happened in 2023. Um, you know, thinking about what was the story of the year, I've got to go with, it was the Taylor Swift economy year, right? Um, I think when we look back on this year, you know, I say it sort of jokingly, but to me, it was a really big example of what we saw this year from consumers, right? This sort of insatiable spending on services and the Taylor Swift tour really was one of the biggest boosts to the economy in some way. And I'll mention Beyonce as well, right? Coming in at number two. So I think that if, if I had to go with the story of 2023, that would be it. And it's not just in the US, right? It was an international tour, you know, in Sweden. Beyonce started her tour there. They saw a pop in inflation in May when she was there. And so, again, it's sort of joking, but it really was a reflection, I think, of what we saw from consumers this year that I think when we look back is going to be pretty remarkable in terms of history. That's a good point. And um, throughout all of this, I remember last year when people were going through all of this, what economists would call discretionary spending. Um, maybe some Swifties would say it's actually quite necessary. Um, but there was this idea that, oh, this is just pent up demand. People want to revenge spend. And then the recession's coming, but that never really happened. And so throughout all of that, the huge prices that people were willing to pay for Taylor Swift concerts, I think, was a sign of really how strong consumption was underneath all those headwinds. Right. And exactly what you said, right? It was this, there was a lot of fear about recession this year. And we saw a lot of Fed tightening, right? We saw the fastest tightening we've seen sort of came to a peak this year. And there was this expectation that consumers would pull back, you know, prices, you know, inflation's falling, but it's still high. But we've really seen that word we saw a lot in the second half of this year, a resilient consumer. That's really been sort of the opposite of what I think many of us economists expected for 2023. Chris, unless you want to drop in your favorite Taylor Swift songs or add anything, um, I'm happy to shift the baton over to you uh, to share your story or quote from this year that you think uh, sums up the year. Well, it's got to be for me higher for longer, right? Uh, because we came into the year after significant rate hikes, the, the, the most rate increases we've seen in decades by the Fed, the Fed promising to be even more aggressive. And I think the fact that we had such a resilient consumer, the fact that Taylor Swift generated a billion dollars of economic activity, despite the fact that we've just seen interest rates rise more in the last three years than they have in any three-year period in history is a testimony to the resilience of the economy and really, I think, an important key to understanding the outlook next year. The fact that higher for longer, it turns out, was much higher and for a lot longer than we thought a couple of years ago, and still the economy is on a better footing than anyone thought it could be. Yeah, and because it, it it surprised, I think, the vast majority of people how resilient it's been, despite that aggressive Fed tightening, um, I mean, I think it, it really should make everyone reconsider how sensitive the economy is to monetary policy now, or potentially, I mean, we could see in the first half of next year or sometime next year, um, that the lags are just different than we understand. But I think really surprised just so many people how that aggressive tightening did not kind of choke activity as much as a lot of the models would suggest. 
Well, I think what you're probably going to find, and we won't know this for sure for years, but I think we're going to look back on 2023 as a shift from what we thought of as the new normal for 15 years after the global financial crisis, when we had extraordinarily low interest rates. Uh, real interest rates were negative for periods that was something economists used to think was impossible but obviously possible because we lived it, right? But reverting back to a more traditional interest rate environment, as I said, you can't know that for sure, but it certainly feels that way given 500 plus basis points of tightening market interest rates, the highest they have been in years and spending almost all categories of spending, business investment, consumer spending, residential investment, all of them stronger this year than they were last year. Um, I'll share my quote now. Um, I was pretty confident that neither of you um, would have brought this up. It's kind of into the weeds of the June Dallas Fed manufacturing survey. So someone in the computer and electronic product manufacturing industry, this was uh, their survey response. We continue to struggle to find qualified staff. We intend to hire more people and embark on a significant capital improvement project so that we have capacity available as soon as the economy starts to recover after the recession that everyone is predicting. So in that, you have uh, this kind of widespread belief that a recession is coming and still companies are hiring and investing like a recession is not coming. And that is kind of what helped avoid the recession that everyone is predicting. Because, of course, if households and businesses usually believe a downturn is coming, we have the paradox of thrift, uh, as Keynes called it, where people start saving, they cut back on spending, and a recession becomes self-fulfilling. Um, so I think this really sums up all of that sentiment, how everyone assumed a recession was coming, but no one was behaving like it. And just that phrase at the end starts to recover after the recession that everyone is predicting. I think that is just everything of uh, 2023. It's absolutely perfect. And I, I'm old enough, I had a grad school professor who was one of the people who helped develop the ISM surveys. The whole point of those surveys was to teach people to manage their inventories. And uh, I, I think you nailed it uh, because everyone expected a recession. They were so much more careful in planning. We never saw the inventory bloat that's usually a precursor. And as a result, it never happened. Uh, Sophia, did you have anything you wanted to add? You know, 2023 might go down as the uh, recession that never happened, right? It's going to be the one that everyone called for. Um, and it's funny to think about what does that mean going into 2024, right? Coming into this year, there were so many recession calls. And I, I wonder if people are skidding away from making calls for 24 because there was so much misguided recession calls this year, right? You even had a Fed that at one point they had a recession in their staff forecast as well for uh, in the SEP, and that never came. So it sort of makes people, I think, hesitant to make the call for the next year as well. I think there's some truth to that, because if you go back to as recently as Halloween, when bond yields were pretty close to their peak, um, the narrative was totally different. And after the Fed's pivot last week, um, after some encouraging inflation data, everyone seems to be on this soft landing kind of kick. And I 
feel like there's a chance that no one wants to be burned again and say that a recession is coming. Um, so there's like an overcompensation um, or, or a course correction where people are discounting the possibility of recession entirely because they were so wrong this year. Now we're gonna go into a statistic, a number or that you think sums up this year. Chris, why don't we start with you? What data point do you think sums up 2023? Super core inflation. Uh, you know, it's something we didn't even know we needed until last November when uh, the folks at the New York Fed dreamed it up for us. But we have been watching the super core services, excluding energy, excluding shelter now for a year. Of course, the reason the Fed's been eagle-eyed watching it is because it's the most sensitive to wages. And it was, through most of 23, the most stubborn in terms of coming down. We had inflation relief in core goods. We saw inflation relief in uh, energy prices, food prices moderated, and even to some extent, shelter moderated before we accelerated. But uh, finally, toward the end of the year, we started to see some moderation in the super core too. But that, to me anyway, especially given the importance of inflation to the Fed and its thinking about what it has to do with rates. That certainly was the indicator everyone, uh, I think, was following in both CPI and PCE reports. And then, of course, the Fed was communicating. That is how they estimated underlying inflation with all the noisier points um, zeroed out. And it was, uh, I mean, it was definitely given more emphasis this year than ever before, even um, if other people had been looking at it in previous years. Sophia, what indicator do you have for us that sums up 2023? So I don't know if it sums up 2023, but it's one, and maybe it sums up my 2023 more personally than the larger scheme, but it has some connection. Um, and it's 2.91 million people on November 26 went through TSA checkpoints. Um, it is the highest number that we've ever seen in the data series that we follow for TSA, so people at airports. Uh, the series only starts in 2019, but it surpassed the 2019 levels. And I think part of it is, is such a good indicator of one, again, sort of consumer spending, right, where we've seen this resilient spending on the service sector, but also because of its underlying sort of the expectation of what it meant on the labor market. Because I think we forget that the labor market actually was a big pain point still in 2023, right? The first half of the year, there was still some difficulty hiring, right? It was really hard to find people. But it's also been the place where the Fed has really started to capitulate the most on their need to see the unemployment rate rise, right? We've seen a very tight labor market this whole year, even with all of the Fed tightening that we've seen. And I think airports, you know, you, you hear a lot of reports about understaffed airports, understaffed airlines, uh, air traffic controllers, not having enough labor demand there for the supply that we're seeing. So that was one. And again, I spent a lot of time in airports this year. So that one really hit home for me as well. I think it is remarkable, and I will go back to a point I made earlier. It seemed like whenever there was a, uh, let's say, big spending report or even a small spending report, a lot of economists and forecasters would say that, you know, this is actually the inflection point. This is the sign that the economy is going to a downturn. I think they wanted some confirmation bias that those recession predictions were going to happen. 
And so I remember in November, people were talking about these headwinds. Maybe there was a, a weak spending report or a weak ISM. And then you have that huge travel day just after Thanksgiving, which shows that people are still comfortable spending as much as they complain about higher airfares. Yeah. And even at the start of this year, right, part of the reason why there were so many recession calls in January was that last December, we have really weak spending. Why? Because the last two weeks of December, there was terrible weather, if you remember, and a ton of flights were canceled in December of 2022. And so it canceled a ton of travel and spend. And that was some of the first data that we got in January that was like, wait a second, things might not be slowing down yet this year. Definitely. So my statistic is uh, kind of a, a subset of Chris's, the Supercore. And so mine is the price measurements for healthcare services. And bear with me as I kind of explain uh, why this is my metric. So, you know, most people are familiar with the idea that there are two big inflation reports in the U.S., the CPI and the PCE. Um, the CPI comes out a couple weeks earlier each month. It's also important for tips traders, but the Fed targets PCE. Now, I would say that in the decade or so before the pandemic when inflation just was not a concern at all the different methodologies and weightings of the cpi and pce were kind of just lost in the noise because well inflation wasn't uh, a concern and then if you go back to last year when inflation was very high it didn't matter what cpi and pce were necessarily uh you know those those different implications because whether inflation is 9% or 6.5%, we know inflation is too high. But I think in 2023, when we got into the so-called last mile of uh, the Fed's inflation fight, these small differences in methodologies actually made a really big difference in the story that inflation data was telling. And so the CPI Supercore, that, that uh, Core Services X Shelter, showed a lot more improvement than the PCE Supercore. And part of that is due to this difference in um, how prices are measured for healthcare services in the CPI and PCE. Um, the other big examples people give are airfares and I believe financial services. Again, these different methodologies were kind of for the, the data nerds for a lot of the last 15 years, but suddenly this year, those tiny differences made a really big difference when those inflation reports came out. Yeah, it's funny, the math became really important, didn't it? Yeah, I think suddenly, you know, these, these changes, the difference between a 0.3% core inflation and point two was actually very important. And if you knew based on methodology or weighting that something would be a temporary phenomenon or evaluated in a certain way, it gives you a very different inflation picture. You know, too, uh, it's a reminder of how touch and go the improvement in inflation was earlier this year. In the last four or five months, it seems like all but one uh, the September report went back the other way, but almost all but one showed improving core and headline inflation. Before that, it wasn't so cut and dry. I think that's a big part of why the Fed narrative has changed so much in the last three months. And it's a big part of why the market mood has changed so much in the last two months. But for most of this year, uh, you really did have to dismantle the inflation indices to have a better sense of what was actually going on. I think that's exactly right. Now, moving on to the next segment, 
this is a bit of a surprise for you guys. Um, I don't think either of you knew this, and I'm sure the vast majority of our listeners don't either, but my job in college was writing and hosting weekly pub quizzes. Um, and so since then, I've done it for friends, for fundraisers, but this is, I can confidently say, the first time that I'm going to give trivia to an audience that is quite familiar with the economy and financial markets. So for this segment, for our listeners, you can give yourself a pat on the back if you uh, get the answer correct. Chris and Sophia, you can talk it out amongst yourselves. I don't think we're even allowed to give out a prize. And uh, so, you know, unfortunately, the winner will just have to be all of us really understanding 2023 better. But uh, if you're ready for this trivia, um, I will go ahead with the first question. Ready. First, I'll just get it off the bat. Um, the question was actually having to do with Sophia mentioned in her uh, recap of 2023, which is, I'm, I'm telling you the answers. This isn't a question. Um, it, <laughs> it was uh, two Beyonce concerts were uh, apparently responsible for 0.2 percentage points of inflation in the month of May in what country? Um, and it was Sweden. So, um, <laughs> Sophia, thank you for uh, kind of preempting one of my five written questions. Well done. You know, Will, it's, it's largely because I personally looked at going to Sweden to attend a concert, but I had a wedding to conflict. Otherwise, I would have been one of the drivers of inflation. You would have driven it, I'm sure, to 0.3 percentage points, you know. <laughs> I would have rounded it up to 0.4. <laughs> exactly. Um, so here's the first real question. Which of the following was not used this year by a member of the FOMC as an analogy to help describe inflation or monetary policy? Weight loss, campfires, ride-sharing apps, and onions. Feel free to talk amongst yourselves. You can do process of elimination. No campfire was one. I know onion was one. Onions were one for sure, yeah. I think it's, is it weight loss? I feel like that would be taboo to talk about. This was the year of Ozempic as well, so could have been. Well, no, that's the thing. I, I think it's got to, just by process of elimination, ride-sharing apps. Because yeah. weight loss, you know, we're trying to sweat off the uh, extra basis points in inflation. And keep them off, not just temporarily. You're right. Exactly. Also, I don't remember anyone talking about, I remember a car metaphor getting on and off the highway, but they don't, didn't specifically say ride sharing. All right. Well, that's your, that's your final answer. It is. Onions were used by John Williams, um, started last year and then into this year. I think even other FOMC participants used it too. The campfire analogy was Lori Logan. And actually, in the first week of this year, Neil Kashkari talked about ride-sharing apps to describe inflation. In his description, which honestly, I don't think is the most interesting analogy, but um, I'll go with it anyway. What he used to illustrate is when rain comes suddenly and there's a surge in demand for Lyft and Uber, mm. um, you know, typically in supply and demand, that would also entice more drivers on the road. But in the short run, it doesn't. And he felt that pandemic inflation was demand shifting quicker than supplies. Oh my goodness, I remember the speech. <laughs> it, it was so long ago. Was it in Minnesota and he had cowboy boots on? <laughs> yes, he did. Brown boots with a blue suit. That's a no-no. Yes. There you go. <laughs> I remember. I thought it looked stylish. Weight loss, again, I thought it would be taboo. A little taboo to talk about. However, Chris, is this going to be our 24 metaphor? Yeah, why not? <laughs> 
so I will say it it was a journalist. Um, I forget what organization actually did use weight loss and kept coming back to it. And I think you guys talked about it. This idea that the the kind of first you know few pounds are the easiest to take off, but then getting to your target weight and keeping it off is the most difficult. Uh, but it was not a member of the FOMC. Good to know. So second question: What trading day? Uh, and you can you don't have to mention the specific date. Um, I'm sure you're much more able to uh, tie it to the actual kind of uh, market moving event. But what trading day had a 34 basis point intraday trading range for the 10 year yield this year? It was the biggest intraday range. In that same day, the two year traded within almost 60 basis points. How about giving us a hint? Was it up or down in yield at the end of the day? Down. So it had to be the December Fed meeting. I was about to say, was it very recent? <laughs> the pivot. I'm sorry, that is incorrect. It was the Monday after Silicon Valley Bank failed. Oh, I thought that was the other option, March. Ooh. March 13th. And so uh, two days later, the two-year traded in a 70 basis point range. Um, so I think after last week's FOMC meeting, it was closer to 20, 25 basis points on the two-year. Yeah. So what you're telling us, Will, is that in 2023, greed was more powerful uh, was powerful, but fear was more powerful than greed. Sure. That, that's one way to look at it. Um, <laughs> another way to look at it is that all of the increase in yields from the summer into the fall were just basically uh, coming back to the late February level um, for at least some of the, you know, some of the securities. Um, okay, I'm I'm really hoping I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that you guys uh, get one of these two final questions. But if not, um, you know, you've at least walked away with some new knowledge. So the CPI, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, looks at a lot of different metropolitan areas in the U.S. for its inflation data. So what was the first city this year to get its year-over-year -year inflation below two percent? In this is in large part because shelter, which is such a, a big part of the CPI weights, this city had the lowest house price appreciation in the Case-Shiller Index since February 2020. It, ha it has to be a city in the Case-Shiller Index, right? Yeah, and so Case-Shiller, um, right, which is you know kind of a a smaller twenty biggest, yeah, yeah, and and then you know the the BLS also doesn't um, have all that many for its CPI metrics. I would go Boise, Idaho, but I don't believe it's in the Case-Shiller Index. San Francisco? Exactly. A place where housing didn't come back. I, I would think it would be San Francisco. Final answer? Yeah, San Francisco, unless, unless Boise, Idaho is in the index. So San Francisco was uh, the second slowest house price appreciation, but actually this city... Um, thanks in part to some very uh, generous liberalization of multifamily housing um, last year, it was Minneapolis. Huh. Wow. And so their house price appreciation is just, I mean, it's, it's crazy compared to actually the most expensive housing change, uh, which is Miami. It's just incredible what you can do to inflation and overall cost of living um, if you can get housing to be more affordable. So that was, that was a little tricky, but I, but I think it's still an interesting fact. No, it's great. It's also a, an excellent lesson in supply being a critical part of the housing market, which is part of what the housing market is pushing up against right now. Yeah, I agree.
and a reminder that housing has the biggest weight in the CPI, uh, which is why Miami inflation was more than uh, almost twice as bad as the national average this year. Right. So the last question of the trivia round before we uh, take a look ahead to 2024. I'm sure you're familiar with in the BLS employment report, they um, categorize all of the different payrolls as 10 different categories plus government. Um, So what is the only industry, the only one of those categories to have lost workers in 2023? And I should say, this is through November data, of course, because we don't have the December jobs report yet. The only industry that has lost workers year over year. Yeah, so so, uh, the level of payrolls in the November data compared to December 2022. I think it's mining. Sophia, any idea? Mining or manufacturing? Trade transportation and utilities has a potential, but I don't think we've seen seen flatlining or come down from this year. So the answer is actually information. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Chris, oh, for four. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's it's called trivia for a reason, right? This is not um, who's the chair of the FOMC. But um, to any listeners, if you get any of these questions, please reach out. We'd love to do trivia with you. Um, so so the Screen Actors Guild strikes, I think, had some lingering effects into November. But, you know, if you break it into the more the, the smaller subcomponents, it's not even that. And it's not um, the tech industry correction. It's that uh, broadcasting and content providers and then also publishing um, have fallen for the last kind of two years. And I think my understanding of that is that as interest rates went up and companies were pulling back on investing, um, ad revenue was kind of their first expense that they cut. And so those companies, those sectors that are really dependent on ads started to kind of have to lay people off en masse. And that was after a huge bubble at the end of 2021 um, when they were hiring like crazy. So I think it's partially a normalization, but some of those sectors are just really kind of still slumping since, uh, you know, even compared to 2019. Well, also, if, if you look at the production boom, the content boom during the pandemic, when people were signing up for multiple streaming services, and now what tends to happen is that People are choosy. If there's something they particularly want to watch, they'll sign up for a month or two, stream the whole thing, and then drop it. But there were billions spent on production by Amazon for Prime, by Netflix. Yeah, those peak numbers are way behind us now. Definitely. And, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see if there are any kind of more corrections or if if those uh, motion picture aspects of that sector kind of pick up in 2024. Um, So before we go into the 2024 indicators, just as kind of a a general discussion question, do you guys think if Chair Powell knew how this year would play out, in hindsight, do you think he and the FOMC would have done anything differently? I know we're in this moment right now where everything looks like it's on a, a smooth path to a soft landing, but do you think that if the Fed knew this is how resilient the economy would be and inflation would improve um, in these certain aspects, would they change their approach? What do you think they uh, kind of learn from this this time? I don't think they would. Uh, I, you know, I think 
what we know now is that uh, tightening was more effective than they expected, in part because there's all these exogenous things from outside the Fed that are weighing on inflation. The fact that growth turned out to be more resilient is sort of a, it's a bonus, you know, as long as inflation's going in the right direction. If inflation were still much too high or rising, that would be a very different story. But if the Fed's going to be wrong about parts of its forecast, it would much rather be wrong in terms of expecting growth to be weaker than it turned out to be than expecting inflation to be lower than it turned out to be. And uh, the, the inflation forecast was pretty good. It was the growth forecast that missed. Sophia, if you were uh, Chair Powell one year ago or one and a half years ago, do you think you would uh, change anything? Or does, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding, considering where we are right now, it looks like the approach is good. Yeah, no, I'd have to agree. I think, I can't think of what I would change um, with the risk of sort of what the repercussions were going to be, right? I, I think if we were in a different period inflation-wise right now, right, if we weren't looking at disinflation that's looking like it's going to be a bit more broad-based in the coming months, then maybe, um, maybe I would have uh, had a little more attention around the, the January, February into March and some of the regulatory aspects the Fed oversees, but um, otherwise, no. <laughs> That's a really good point, Sophia. I think uh, if if he knew everything he knows now, <laughs> there are a couple of banks that would be getting a phone call from Chair Powell around the turn of the year. But otherwise, no, I think, you know, I'm a big believer, um, say what you want, but I think the Fed, for a lot of the cards they've been dealt, have navigated pretty well um, everything we've gotten through so far. Again, the worst thing that's happened this year is we've actually had better than expected growth, right? Yeah, you could say that. And right. And we'll, we'll see how this, um, you know, this this recording, of course, will be published and etched in stone. So if a big town downturn comes in February, I think uh, everyone will be eating their words. So we're going to move on now to, to forward looking, which is a 2024 indicator. So in the same way that we were talking about uh, one indicator you think sums up this year, if you could look into your crystal ball, what indicator are you looking at um, to kind of give a sense of what the 2024 economy, how that will shape up? Sophia, why don't we start with you? I'm going to be watching housing next year and specifically sort of the, the math on renting versus owning, right? A lot of what we've seen in the housing market this year in particular in the last couple of months has been that supply demand issue in large part because people aren't moving, they aren't listing their homes, there isn't enough supply. And so we haven't seen outside of Minneapolis, right, in some of these places where there's still a lot of demand for housing and not enough supply, we haven't seen the same sort of price slowdown that you would have expected at this point in the cycle. So I think I'm going to be watching sort of house prices and also because there's such a key price, uh, excuse me, figure for inflation um, and such a key part of household budgets. And on a bigger scale beyond 2024, I think one of the interesting things right now is you know, there's a question of are people shifting more towards renting than home ownership, which would be a big shift for the U.S. economy longer term. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The housing market is in such a weird position where prices have gone up, um, even though mortgage rates have gone above 8% at some point this year, just because 
people hate their house, love their mortgage, they're staying in place. Um, and so it, it feels like the housing market is, you know, kind of primed for some sort of correction. And of course that can cause some pain or contagion uh, if things don't go entirely smoothly. Chris, what indicator do you have your eye on uh, that you think will be a good kind of bellwether for next year? I'm going with productivity. You know, we economists like to talk about no such thing as a free lunch. More often than not, we're talking about bad news. Somebody's got to give something up so that the economy doesn't overheat. Uh, productivity is the reason that economics is not a zero-sum game. It's the reason that you can grow profits and raise wages faster than inflation at the same time. It is uh, a payoff that normally comes fairly late in an expansion. It has just turned positive and picked up on a year-on-year -year basis. But I think it's going to be a terrific year for productivity next year, partly because AI is the biggest productivity revolution for the service sector that we've seen in, in uh, since the fax machine and email. I, I really do think it's going to be a game changer. And the beauty is, thanks to productivity, I think inflation's going to come down potentially even faster than it would if we were just benefiting from supply chain healing and um, immigration and participation in the labor market. I think, yeah, ChatGPT4 came out um, just over a year ago. I think it was around Thanksgiving 2022. Um, and it's, uh, you know, pretty phenomenal. I think it's impressed everyone. Um, and even if there, it could take some time for a lot of industries to adopt it efficiently, um, I feel like it's already going to replace um, a lot of menial tasks uh, that, you know, used to be kind of, you know, take a lot of human labor hours in a day could now be reduced to, to kind of a simple search. You know, just to give one example, recently in a conversation with a banker, uh, their bank is starting to integrate AI into the loan application and analysis process. And what it means, you still need loan officers ultimately to do the due diligence. AI isn't perfect, right? And we, we all know that. But um, it, it, it is a huge time saving anyway, partly because it can collect the necessary information in a way that would take a lot more time for people to do. And I think, you know, the other thing to remember, of course, is that it's getting better all the time. As you said, chat GPT-4 was significantly better than three and the development continues. Uh, so my 2024 indicator that I'm going to be watching is the foreign-born labor force. Um, so I think a big story for this year, why job growth continued while at the same time the unemployment rate went up a little bit, we didn't see extra wage pressures, um, kind of any big increase or at least plateauing of job openings, um, was we had an increase in the labor force. And part of this was bringing people off the sidelines because jobs were attractive with the wages but also a big part of it was an increase in the foreign-born labor force. So since February, 2020, the foreign-born labor force has grown by 2.8 million people, while the native-born labor force has grown by uh, 954,000. 
And so that is a big part of the story of kind of the supply side of the economy being able to uh, meet the big demand that caused early pandemic inflation. Um, part of this was really just a, a kind of normalization because earlier in the pandemic, a lot of the visa process was stopped and we didn't have as many migrants coming in. And now uh, a lot of those people that were just waiting for that process to resolve themselves, they already had a job. They were able to go into the labor force. And I think this is especially important because we saw a lot of retirements, earlier retirements than we would otherwise think because of COVID and maybe some higher wealth uh, allowed people to retire a little bit earlier. But that means a smaller labor force and for, uh, you know, in order to have enough workers to kind of meet this demand, I think the foreign born labor force will be a key thing to watch um, so that we can have job growth without the labor market overheating. Totally. That's a great one that we'll have to keep an eye on. And it's also it's not just a 2024 thing, right? It's a longer term thing that the U.S. and the world is thinking about in terms of population growth as well. Right. And then. Of course, it's also in the center of uh, legislative attention at the moment as well. So the dynamics politically could change. Yeah, I think, you know, more so than than any other part of the labor market, that uh, variable is tied to policy that could change. Of course, if there is another geopolitical shock, whether it's a pandemic or something else, that also can change how much kind of free flowing labor we have coming in or going out. Well, that is all that we have planned for uh, today's episode. I hope it was a good review of everything that happened in 2023 and also gives our listeners a sense of what to look out for in 2024. I hope everyone has a good end to their year. Chris and Sophia, if you have any parting words before we sign off and record our first new episode in a couple weeks, here's your opportunity. I'll just say thanks for having us, Will. It's been great for me to think about everything that has happened this year. Um, and there is likely to be a lot happening in 2024, and we will uh, be keeping everyone informed, hopefully. So happy new year to everyone. New year, new us. That's right. Uh, I, I guess I, I'll weigh in with uh, after a particularly challenging year in the markets. Here's looking forward to what I expect is going to be a much more pleasant 2024. Yes, crossing our fingers that uh, the uh, the 2023 that people thought for the bond market um, at the beginning of this year actually comes to fruition next year. We'll cross our fingers for that soft landing. But thanks again, Chris and Sophia. Uh, Till next time. That was Chris Lowe and Sophia Kearney Letterman with FHN Financial. As we look back on everything that happened in 2023, it's remarkable how much the economy survived this year in order to avoid a recession and keep inflation on an improving trajectory. We're hopeful that the recovery will continue into 2024 and interest rates will normalize to better reflect an environment with sustained low inflation. January kicks off with a holiday-shortened but busy week of data. The January ISM surveys will be released Wednesday and Friday, but the real focus will be on Friday's December employment report. The consensus estimate is for payrolls to have grown by 170,000 and the unemployment rate to have risen slightly from 3.7% to 3.8%. December CPI and PPI will be released on January 11th and 12th respectively. As always, the inflation reports will be watched closely to better gauge the Fed's path for monetary policy. The FOMC minutes for the December meeting will be released this upcoming Wednesday. Considering the pivot at the December 13th meeting, 
The minutes will be scoured for clues as to how the Fed decided to start shifting to a more dovish disposition, to what extent possible future rate cuts were discussed at the meeting, and whether there were any dissents. Fed officials are scheduled to speak the next couple weeks, though we see nothing on the calendar that features Chair Powell. Treasury's coupon auctions resume on January 9th with a three-year auction, followed by the 10-year and 30-year the next two days. Treasury currently expects the next quarterly refunding announcement on January 31st to be the last increase in auction sizes for the foreseeable future. That's all for today's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Will Comperl, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.